0: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Werner Herzog's new thriller, Salt and Fire. The film follows a scientific delegation who, after being tasked by the UN with investigating an ecological disaster in South America, is kidnapped by the CEO of the corporation responsible for the problem. After one member is deliberately stranded with two blind boys in the middle of gigantic salt flats, she and her abductor must work together after a nearby supervolcano begins to show signs of an imminent eruption. In addition to Salt and Fire, Mr. Herzog's many credits include the feature films Agira, The Wrath of God, The Enigma of Kaspar Hauser, Nosferatu the Vampire, Fitzcarraldo, Invincible, Rescue Dawn, and Queen of the Desert, the documentaries Into the Abyss, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, and Little Dieter Needs to Fly, and episodes of the television documentary series On Death Row. Mr. Herzog was nominated for the Academy Award for his 2009 documentary Encounters at the End of the World. He won the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary, for his 2005 feature, Grizzly Man. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Herzog spoke with fellow director Kevin Smith about filming Salt and Fire. During their conversation, Mr. Herzog discusses how he played with perspective in the film, his efficiency as a filmmaker, and the famous shoe-eating bet.
1: So... When I fell in love with indie film, I started seeking it out, started like going up to New York City to see films and stuff like that. Um, picking up every piece of, uh, indie film journalism you can get your hands on, which included like movie maker magazine, filmmaker magazine. Um, but there was always uh, legendary uh, figures that rose to the top. People that like you didn't even imagine yourself ever having a career in film. You just wanted to make a movie. And there were filmmakers that, had gone before you that you looked at and said, my God, that's that's who I would want to be. That's how I would want to do it. And I first uh, became exposed to the work of uh, tonight's genius by v- v- uh, virtue of, of course, uh, Fitzcarraldo, which when I fell into independent film was one of the first 10 movies I think I watched. A smart person said, you should watch that. So knowing that filmmaker's name, because boy, it really pops and stuff, it stands out. Uh, I I remember hearing about a short film that a friend of mine who was into film, a true Cine East, was like, you have to track down this movie and see it. Again, we had no internet, so you couldn't just look it up. And he said, it's called uh, Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, man, he made a fucking bet with someone once, and he lost it, and he had to eat a fucking- shoe and they shot it and I was like, that's insanely metal and they're like, of course it's metal. this is the guy that made a gear a wrath of God that's the most metal film ever made. So I've searched it out and found it and it wasn't into, and, and it's wonderful if you've never seen it. it's, it.'s it's bizarre and, and it's also like you know at, at its core the story of a man who keeps his word. But the moving thing about it to me always was the reason he did it if you don't know the story, uh, Errol Morris, the, the documentarian, uh, was always having great ideas and not really following through on on them all the way, so uh, Werner Herzog said, "Look, I will, I'll bet you that you're not going to finish this the pet cemetery documentary you're working on. If you do, I'll eat my shoe." And it was done as a kind of motivational like technique, a challenge thrown down the gauntlet, but also motivational, like you know, get off your finished something. And it helped. our Morris finished the documentary. I think it was 1978. They premiered it and then standing by his word, uh, our, our speaker tonight sat down, publicly ate his shoe, cooked it up and, they, and somebody shot it and whatnot. And he said before he ate it, I hope people going forward take from this um, a, a lesson, I'm paraphrasing, a lesson ab- about um, finishing something. If you have an idea, chase it through, follow through all the way. That meant the world to me as a kid who just wanted to make a movie. You needed people to look up to, and somebody I absolutely looked up to and and kind of based a career I didn't know I'd ever have on. As I sat there going, like, one day I want to be like this guy. Uh, because this person is an uncompromising filmmaker, does whatever the fuck he wants. The greatest filmmakers on the planet do the weirdest movies and just do whatever they want. And sometimes they're easy to follow and sometimes we can't follow them into the places they go. But those are the filmmakers that thrilled me and made me want to go toward that world. Nothing safe, nothing like guaranteed, always an expression of oneself, the true work of an artist. And we just saw a piece of that work, a guy who's still doing it decades into a career. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome to the stage, the genius, Werner Herzog.
2: Thank you for the introduction. It's a little bit embarrassing, but I, I should talk about the bet with uh, Errol Morris. I knew you would clear it up, do it. No, it, there's not much clearing it up. I. It was more to encourage him. I said, to you haven't finished all your projects. You have given up on the cello. You have given up on your writing project on mass murderers. You have given up on your academic career. So uh, this is something you have to finish. and And I know you will finish it because I'm gonna eat my shoes that I'm wearing right now. I remember it was Clark's Desert Boots <laughs> that I wore. <laughs> they were not very tasty, but you can cook them and eat them, it's okay. So and You looked
1: that up in advance before you made the bet? You were like, this no, is an I, edible I knew,
2: shoe. I knew you could eat leather. You can eat your belt, you can eat your briefcase, you can I eat I ate my your belt shoes. a long time ago, sure, yeah. uh, I, I assure you. Yeah.
1: Um, Let's talk about real quick before we dive into the actual movie itself. There's a story that I always loved as well Did you steal your first film camera? Is that true?
2: Well, uh, I wouldn't call it like that Uh, There was a predecessor of the Munich Film School and they had equipment and they they were supposed to hand it out for free for young aspiring filmmakers and I um I asked for and I submitted my request for projects, they never gave me any camera. So one day I was in there and in the shelves I had cameras, of course at that time celluloid, 35 millimeter celluloid, and I realized that nobody, all of a sudden, nobody was in the room, so I looked and I grabbed one unobtrusively, Grabbed one, walked out, and I was supposed—I actually meant to return it after I was done filming in a week or so. But but then I was doing almost immediately my next film, and I thought, uh, and I listened a little bit around. They hadn't even noticed that the camera was missing. Probably until today, they didn't notice that a camera was missing. So I thought this was more like expropriation. And and I had a natural right for using this camera, so I, I used. How very
1: German of you, man! That was.
2: Yeah, no, it it was it was a, a feeling of justice, <laughs> and and I uh, usurped it and I just uh, did it. It it was I never felt like theft, and and today you don't need to steal a camera because you can shoot a feature film on your cell phone, and you can edit it uh, on your laptop. Right. So it's it's that simple and the equipment has become so available that uh, you don't have to do a drastic step like uh, just taking a, a, a camera.
1: Now, you've seen over the course, how many years you have been filmmaker? How many decades at this point? Uh,
2: since I'm 19, I made my first film when I was 19. Uh, so it's quite a few decades. Uh, but it's an interesting question because of course there are colleagues here and uh, normally the uh, the life of a filmmaker is fairly short. Normally, statistically speaking, in film history, it's around 15 years. Is that right? And then you are pretty much out. And it has hit the strongest of the strong, like uh, David Ward Griffith, who made films between 1914 and 1927 or so. And then he was out. Uh, of of business nobody financed his films anymore and i think he he lived as a earned a living as a land surveyor i just saw a photo out out there in the hallway of orson wells orson wells didn't have i mean he was a very early a prodigy and he was as strong as, as any animal in this profession could be. But he didn't last very long because he didn't have a long-term strategy. He would, for example, waste um, the entire budget uh, in pre-production. And then the studios uh, uh, stopped him in, in his tracks. And uh, and he... he I, I mean, he continued somehow to make some films, but but he was literally taken out in such a strong figure. And normally they don't last very long. And and how do you do it? Uh, for example, in, in contracts uh, with production companies, I would have a clause, an unusual clause, that I uh, was um, allowed to look into the daily cash flow because that's, and I would sit every evening after shooting for 20, 30 minutes with the accountant and the line producer and look at the cash flow because that's where you see the problems arising first. Mm. That's where you really see it. And you can go to the bottom of it. Why did we spend the entire budget for costumes before we even have started? And there's so and so many. And it turns out they made for every single person who walks past uh, somewhere in the background had two suits. What happens if the suit gets spoiled or ruined or has some coffee stains on it? I said, forget about it. Uh, That person will have only one suit. So I put a stop to it and... uh, and my tendencies in and, and 70 or so films, I've never been over budget. Uh, and five or six six times now under budget. And most notably uh, in uh, the film uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, I, I brought the film back $2.6 million under budget, which is unheard of in Hollywood.
1: Uh, they get suspicious when you do and, that.
2: And now the... Now the producer wants to marry me. <laughs> so, but, but it, it's part of a long-term strategy, but it's only one segment. So I'm, I'm trying to, to figure out how can I survive with projects where I know they are probably not going to be very popular or it's outside the narrative forms that you normally would uh, adopt. And uh, Salt in Fire is a film where uh, nothing is predictable. Uh, it starts uh, like an action movie and all of a sudden there's discourse, long discourses about uh, anamorphic art and a saint under a tree. And when you walk towards the saint, uh, the saint stretches out and becomes a landscape. Or about uh, a talking bird that uh, quotes Ecclesiastes so nobody nobody would expect that, and then nobody expects that the leading character the the uh, woman the scientist, all of a sudden is deliberately stranded in in a salt desert together with two blind boys It's outside of what what the narrative structure of a of a Hollywood film, for example, would be, and of course i I knew from the beginning this would be a, an uphill battle with audiences. And it's more a, a project for, for long-term embedded in other things that I've done before.
1: Let me ask you this. The, I just want to touch back on the financial aspect. Is that something you've been doing for since the beginning? In terms of yes. looking at the budgets and, and thinking about that sure. type of career longevity yes. at that point?
2: And I, I have no, I have learned it the hard way because uh, when I started out to submit projects to production companies or TV stations or whatever, I was always thrown out. I w- number one, I was too young and I, I wasn't even fully grown up yet. I was a school child. Mm. And I knew I would never produ- make a film un- unless I became my own producer. Meaning, uh, how do you become a producer? You have to have money. How do you get money uh, by just working? And I I was still in school, in high school, and I worked the night shift as a welder in a steel factory. So, and it was piecework. And uh, every hour that's passing by, two o'clock in the morning, three, four, five in the morning, you really are worn down and and you know the value of money. And and now uh, I make a film 35 millimeter celluloid and you know, you know every second uh, the camera is rolling is something like $5. Hmm. Meaning to buy the raw stock, to have it developed, uh, to have a work print, to have uh, and, and so on. It's about $5 per second. So you really take care and, and I do not shoot much. That's one of the strategies, because if you don't shoot much, number one, your time of uh, shooting is very limited, and it's a major factor for budget increase or decrease. And um, I I do not shoot much coverage, and it makes everybody nervous on, on a set. You didn't shoot coverage. I said I covered everything I want to see on the screen. I see it very clearly, I do not need all these uh, hours and hours and hours and uh, and shot after shot after shot from all variety of angles. You see, that means delegating the problems into post-production, kicking the can down the road. You better take your decisions while you're shooting. And for a film, in in this case a documentary, Into the Abyss, about uh, capital punishment and one of the the uh, protagonist in the film was uh, executed 8 days later in fact the film is almost 2 hours long but I shot 6 hours of footage and anyone else would have shot 450 hours Easily. so it was very short filming very short editing and the film was right there so um and, and I, I know how to be economical with uh, with my approach with a coverage, uh, with uh, um, making things doable, people always believe yeah, uh, I'm the, the man who doesn't take no for an answer. That's wrong, wrong. I do take no for an answer. And and for example, uh, in Grizzly Man, uh, when I was uh, supposed to have uh, a tape recording of the death of Timothy Treadwell, the bear. Advocate and his girlfriend, uh, which was actually caught on tape, the moment where bear attacked them and killed them and ate them, and I didn't include it in the film. There was uh, there was a borderline, and it was clear I wouldn't I wouldn't include it in the film. And I I otherwise uh, I I do the doable.
1: You said something a second ago that gave me pause. Who at did, did they still at this point go, "Hey, you're not getting enough coverage at this point in your career?"
2: Uh yes, I mean the last time really when it happened was uh when I did bad lieutenant because most of the all my, practically all the crew was uh, an American crew mm. from Hollywood and from Louisiana. Mm. And uh my days of shooting ended at uh, 3, thirty, four o'clock, but I could have extended it until 7 p.m. from there on overtime. In my entire life, I had not one single hour of overtime, not one. And I said, ah, it's only 3 o'clock, we finished here, can we rush over to the next location and do tomorrow's work? No, we couldn't because the location wasn't ready and the actor... For that location hadn't arrived yet. He mm. was coming in at night uh, by plane. So I said, uh, "Let's call it a wrap." And and all of a sudden, I hear this grumbling and mumbling. Yeah, yeah. But what about uh, what about coverage? Second day, the same thing. Coverage, coverage. And I didn't even know what it meant. And I took my <laughs> assistant. Uh, uh, d- assistant, director to the side, a wonderful man, and I said to him, "Coverage, coverage. What do they mean? I know what it means with my car insurance. If I have, if I have a, if I cause an accident and you are my passenger and you are injured, uh, the insurance would cover you up to, I don't know, fifty thousand dollars in bodily damage."
1: So, You're like a walk and, in and Wikipedia, what, what man. You're yes. amazing.
2: And and what does it what does it mean coverage? And he said, Yeah, I mean a shot, very close up of the eyes, and a shot from above, and a shot here, and the, sh- and and maybe circling around. I said, No, no, no. This is, this is completely crazy. I have really everything. And on the third day, it was became really vociferous. We haven't filmed coverage. So uh, Nicolas Cage uh, said, hey, uh, team, together, come come here, come here. Is there an apple box? They put an apple box. He steps up and he says, he says come close. And he said, finally, a director who knows what he's doing mm-hmm. and left. And that was that. That silenced the call for coverage. And uh, in this uh, film, I couldn't do much coverage, even if I wanted because I had only 16 days of shooting for the film, a variety of locations and unknowns, like uh, two young boys who were almost blind and only spoke Quechua and some Spanish. Mm. So you never know what's what's happening with them. Although uh, sometimes the unknown was really nice to, to do, because when they play this board game and they throw the dice I only I took the boys aside and I whispered to them, cheat her, cheat. But she didn't know that they were going to cheat, and she starts to notice they are cheating, and at the end uh, she does. And she was completely left alone with the situation, and she does it in a very sweet way. She keeps tickling them, and yeah. that's a very human, very beautiful moment. So um, you do certain things as a director. Uh, that uh, will trigger something. Hopefully, you only get it if you have uh, real good actors who who are confident and uh, do not step out of the role. Yeah, she didn't turn to me and said, uh, "They are cheating. Uh, what should I do?" No, she, she <laughs> which didn't. would have been awesome. Cut! Yeah. They're yeah. f***ing yeah. cheating. Yeah, like. so sure. Sure. you 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 have to have you have to have actors who. Uh, who know the very basics, and uh, and I try to be hidden somewhere next to, almost behind the camera. So sometimes uh, with the boys, I would line up the team pretty much behind the camera, so that they couldn't listen and look around. Can anybody help us? No, they were left alone here in this scene.
1: That's that, that's sounds cruel, but effective.
2: No, it's not cruel. It's I mean, it's it's a normal normal work procedure. In the right. boys, the boys knew I was only I was only fifteen feet or, or ten feet away from them, and if anything happened, uh, I, I would instantly uh, be available. One of them desperately needed to pee, and I, I noticed, and I stopped everything, and I said, "Come on, uh, I know what's happening. Let's go behind this rock." And, and when you are done, you call me and I take you out. So uh, You are a full-service
1: yeah. director right there. And
2: well, that's part, uh, lion taming is part of it. Part what, of the what job. What we are doing.
1: What you're doing, sir. No,
2: what, what directors are doing. Lion taming of the unexpected. Yeah. Is that and, how you look even at even it? I, and I do believe that in the, in the studio system, much, although everything, every step is somehow pre-planned, much uh, is happening that uh, goes into the realm of, of the completely unexpected For it exe- does it does happen sure
1: what does happen
2: the unexpected on in, s- on, set. On, on a set in inside of a studio so you uh, and and that's a nature of what of, of the work that we are doing
1: um, the sequence in the film in the cloister, like where he's talking yeah. about the image in the book and dreaming of going there, and then you actually, presumably you went there, you didn't duplicate that.
2: No, um, <clears throat> but it's one of the very rare moments where things were done digitally. That means a series of photographs connecting and then the uh, a, a virtual sort of space because i didn't know exactly how long what would be explained in the speed and the in that i didn't know until very late that the uh, traveling shot should uh, <clears throat> look at the uh, at the saint and come closer and move like 90 degrees a different angle hmm. but uh, in the landscape that's stretched out now, you see the Strait of Messina and the, and not very large, the saint surfing on his, on his coat across to Sicily. And, and I wanted to have that included. And so I, I created the movement in a way that it coincides with the explanation of the dialogue and ends up with the saint surfing to Sicily. That because the story is just is too so good. amazing is and that something
1: you picked up? I've read once that you were Catholic for a minute. did you pick that up during that period? no
2: uh, not not during my brief career as a Catholic. but uh of course, I've always been uh fascinated by stories of saints and I've been fascinated by uh, what's going on in the Vatican for example it's it's a it's a beautiful sort of uh of area where, where it's very fascinating and and rewarding to take a good look at it. What's going on there? What are the intrigues? What are the articles of faith? How does it shift over time? How does the church behave in, in uh, extraordinary situations? Mm. And sometimes they, they do the extraordinary good and sometimes they don't. For example, uh, Catholic Church mostly a uh, widely ignored uh, uh, th- the the rising Nazis and and the Nazi atrocities and mm. the Church kept silent, so that's that's alarming, but other things that are not not that alarming and and uh, so I, I like to to look in and listen into it. For example, I would read the speeches of the predecessor of Frans- Franciscus uh, Benedict, the German, the Bavarian Pope, and and what's really fascinating, he was in Auschwitz, and in a in a speech that is not longer than ten twelve minutes, three times, three times in the speech he asks, at that time of of uh, of the genocide, of the of the unspeakable, where was God then? Three times in in the course of this short uh, uh, speech. And I, I have the feeling that uh, he doubted God. The first pope who somehow admitted that he doubted God. Where was God then? And I found it most fascinating. And I told to m- some of my friends, he cannot stay pope. This is a pope who will resign. And he actually he resigned. Did. But I think he resigned over other things. He was a He was a public relations disaster as intelligent as he was, a deepest thinker on the papal sea for maybe at least 300 years. A disaster in dealing with the media, a disaster dealing with his administration, a disaster in many other things. So I'd still like to, to look at things like that.
1: Um, you, God, you could talk about anything, dude. I feel like you'd be an excellent ad-libber improv artist. People could just yell out things like the Pope, and you could do 15 minutes on the Pope.
2: No, I, I just, uh, it, it's two sources. One is, I have been curious all my life, and I have never learned from anyone. Uh, everything that I know, I have learned. Empirically? Myself. I'm a self-taught, and that sticks. You see when I'm fascinated about a speech of a pope, of course I remember it. It's it's not in school, you forget it within five days. Mm-hmm. But when you when you learn it yourself in the second second source probably is that I do read. I do not see many films, but I read. And I keep telling young, aspiring filmmakers you have to read, 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 If you don't read, you will be a filmmaker anyway, but a mediocre at best.
1: God, if Where, you were, you, where were you 20 years ago? I could have used that information. Let me ask yeah, you this. No, it's
2: today uh, in in the internet age and where you get all your information from some apps on your on your smartphone. Uh, I, it it goes uh, uh, like from one ear uh, uh, in one year, the other year out. So uh, because there's
1: a repository, so you don't really uh, have to memorize and, and it or even,
2: learn it. Even in uh, uh, it's in academia, let's say um, the um, uh, even in uh, classics or so, where you are supposed to read the ancient Greek and Latin uh, writers and philosophers, even there they don't read. Really, it's very very strange. I have seen it. Uh, that it's, they have a hard time to articulate three, four sentences into one coherent thought. And it's because they just don't read enough.
1: The, um, the, the film that we just watched ended with the cheapest special effect you could probably pull off in movies, forced perspective. And I, you're talking about before, this is a movie you can't really predict where it's going. I never would have predicted the last two minutes of that movie were going to be as charming as they were, as Michael Shannon was eating people off a spoon and stuff like that. Was that something that comes to you while you're there on set? Was that in the book? It was based um, on No, a book?
2: well, it was in the screenplay, but uh, I must confess uh, I looked uh, into tourist photos and I saw that many of them have, have done photos like that with... Um, perspectives that are not functioning as our everyday relationship to spatial reality because Mm. you have nothing to compare. You don't know how far a person is away. And for example, when Michael Shannon has a spoon, um, uh, Veronica Ferris, the actress, is not further away than like from here to this wall. Mm. So perspectives are so intense uh, for, for our eyes, but, uh, of course we are deceived and misled if there are other elements there that we can somehow, uh, use for, for comparison, but there's no comparison. And I've seen it in tourist photos online, by the way, uh, uh, on the internet, as stupid as it may sound, but I, of course, concocted my own sort of, uh, things with perspectives.
1: It's, uh, for me, as I was watching, it, I was like, wow, man, there's, that's a true filmmaker. Somebody that's like, here's something nobody really does anymore, but is going to look fantastic. Like, I guarantee you, if a studio was making that film, which they really wouldn't, but if they were, they would build that ending on a computer, like to do the forced perspective stuff. You took advantage of things that happen it's naturally. It's not really in the a world.
2: forced perspective. It, it is a perspective, but it is a perspective that, uh, Functions contrary to our experience uh, in in real life. Here, it's very easy to to see you and and uh, gauge or have an have an idea about your size, because I have a carpet here and I have rows of seats, and and my my perspective, my my brain somehow translates you into regular-sized people and not tiny as this, and it, it functions like this when you have a chimney sweep. They look down at people. Actually, after less than a year of working on roofs, they see a person not like seeing them like a dot and hardly anything of the body because they see they see them. They, the, their brain somehow translates them. They see them almost like I see you. Mm. Or, for example, we know that our eyes... In our retina, uh, an image that's coming in here is, is inverted. So in fact, what my retina receives here is this uh, theater, but inverted. But my mind somehow corrects it and you are up, upside, you are upright. Mm. And uh, I think there were tests made where people got glasses on that would invert an an image, so you would see everything upside down. But within a few days, a brain would correct it and you would see it against the inversion through your glasses. Against that, you would see everything as we are uh, seeing it now.
1: Um, You just keep getting too deep on a very shallow man. Um, Let me ask you this question. Uh, A career like yours which is I, I never
2: had a career. Okay.
1: Uh, a life Meaning, like yours. Yeah, full of car- art like yours. Career
2: means planning and uh, and and uh, planning the next step and what could be successful and should I acquire the rights of a of a novel which is uh, uh 40 weeks on the New York bestseller list. or so now it has never happened like this projects I always come with uh, great vehemence, and I'm just dealing with the one that's coming at me with the most vehemence, and I try to uh, to deal with it.
1: Um, what kickstarted all of that? What was the first movie you saw that made you go, that's for me?
2: Well, I, I didn't see movies until I was 11, and by the way, I didn't even know that cinema even existed because I grew up in the mountains, and there was... For example, we had no running water. You had to go to the well with a bucket and hardly ever electricity, no phone. I made my first phone call at age 17, which is inconceivable today for young people. And uh, by coincidence, a traveling projectionist came to this one classroom school. And in this class there were four grades, first, second, third, fourth grades, all in one room, we were something like 26 or 28 kids and one teacher, and a uh, projectionist showed uh, two films, and I found them lousy and didn't impress me at all. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was that. And only later, when uh, at age 11 or 12, when I moved back to Munich, uh, I saw films, but all the sort of B pictures, Doctor Fu Manchu, Tarzan. Zoro, and uh, that was basically that. And I always had the feeling that I had to invent cinema. This was not really what should be done, <laughs> and I I had the feeling I was the inventor of cinema. Until today, by the way, it's very <laughs> strange. Yeah, really, because uh, on on this film, I remember the cinematographer at one point said to me, "But uh, Werner, nobody does it like that." Uh, and I said yes, but here it's a logical moment in the story. We, uh, doesn't matter if nothing does it like that. We are here to invent cinema, so let's do it. And and he understood, and we do it. We did it.
1: Um, my lord, what a pioneer you are! Uh, it's no, just, not pioneer. <laughs> oh, good God, God. Uh, I can't compliment you. You won't I'm, take a compliment.
2: Just, no, no, I'm I'm just uh, trying to be a good soldier.
1: <laughs> um, th- is it? Does it get hard over decades of a career having to bring people to a specific vision um, to convince people, like, I know what I'm doing and I know what I want, and I don't need to do a bunch of coverage, and I don't need to make a movie like that. These are the films that I want to make. Does it get harder or easier over the course of a lifetime?
2: No, I think it's always always about the same, and you have to, uh, to be very clear, and it's... Uh comes fairly easily to me because I see an entire film as if you saw it here on a screen, and I can explain it and I can describe it very easily. For example, uh, the opening shot in Queen of the Desert—you uh, see her, or the first shot of uh, uh, of the protagonist—you see Nicole Kidman only from behind for more than a minute or so, Mm. and everybody said to me, yeah, but you should move around and watch her face. No, 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 I only allow a shot from behind it. At the end, she picks up a mirror, and she looks at herself, and only then, for the first time, we see her face. So, uh, And and it was so uh, overwhelmingly clear for me that you build up some sort of a curiosity. Who is this woman? Who is she? and being harassed by her parents, and, and who is she? And all of a sudden you see the mirror image, uh, and, and then she's a protagonist. So um, it was clear I'm not going to allow any shot uh, uh, into her face, mm. not in this opening sequence. And you have to make it clear, and it's, it comes easily to me to, to explain a, a clear vision. You have to know what you are doing. And then the second thing is uh, from day one, you have to create a climate on the set that is very, very exciting and creative. And everybody notices from day one on, oh, this is going to be big. This was a fantastic day. The situation was lousy in in Bolivia. We were at... at 12, 13,000 feet altitude. It was cold. Uh, it was salt. Uh, and we slept in a hotel that was built of salt slabs. And first night or so in morning, no running water. So you come at, in the morning, nobody could even brush their teeth. Mm. And so, uh, how do you cope with that? And, and somehow, th- but there was a climate. Let's go out there because this is going to be beautiful. What we what we are going to do today, and at night, I'm sure there will be water, which actually happened, and we had uh, we had a van coming, and they brought mineral water on onto the set, and uh, you you take care of the mineral water because it would have ruined uh, the climate, the atmosphere, the readiness of everyone to follow what we are doing. Hmm. Sometimes it's tiny things, and uh, It has never been really hard for me to get things across. Sometimes in a very vague way, I remember Nicolas Cage said to me, Werner, I know you hate uh, to have these endless discussions with actors about motivation and what what his uh, childhood was or whatever, and psychology and all sorts of things. And he said to me, but I have one question. Why is a bad lieutenant so bad? Is it his drug habits? Is it his uh, chaotic relationship with a girlfriend? Is it the dysfunctional um, place, family, where he comes from? Uh, Or is it um, the Hurricane Katrina, uh, uh, for example, the corruption in the police force? And I said, no, no, don't rattle on. There's such a thing like the bliss of evil. Go for it. And he got, he went for it. Nice. So that's that's how we work as directors.
1: You the, uh, you like in this film and just in Fitzcarraldo and a lot of your work, you also take advantage of the natural landscape. You feature yeah. the world and. They're beautiful. What I assume are drone yeah. shots of, of sure, yes, and, of and traveling
2: shots out from a car yeah. window. So I'm I'm good I'm good at landscapes, and yeah. I like to not just to direct uh, actors. I I somehow in a way direct and stylize landscapes, and I love to direct animals as well. Really? I think we are. No, they are always very good animals in my movies. <laughs> I think we have to finish here.
1: We we? Are signs. they waving? Oh, is that it? I'm sorry, yeah. I got lost. Um, thank you very I, much. Oh my God, thank you. The honor has been all mine. Give it up, ladies and gentlemen, for Werner Herzog.
2: You.
1: I hope we didn't go too much over time.
2: Uh, I think there's a, sorry, there's a limit for uh, the recordings here. Thank you very much and good night.
1: Give it up for Werner, man. Thanks for coming out, folks. Go make a movie this year. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.